Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Let's work on the papers. Everybody get your paper out so I can look at the comments. First of all, what we want to do is to make sure that we have a cover sheet every time. And the reason is every, everyone looks at their front page. You see all the writing I did on the front page? <laughs> I have a lot of writing on the front page. And I need some place to write. So use a cover sheet because it not only makes it neater and more presentable for you, but it also allows me to write more freely and to write more on it. So use a cover sheet. Let me go through some of the comments that I, I, I have made. If you see a comment saying fluff, that means that those sentences didn't need to be there. They were empty sentences. They just didn't say anything. They didn't convey any information. So, fluff is different from jumbled. Jumbled means that there's too many ideas in one paragraph, and you need to separate those ideas out into separate paragraphs. Fluff means the ideas themselves were not there. They were just words without, without meaning. The really important thing that I'd like you all to focus on is the big picture. When you take a course in science fiction, think about who those science fiction writers are. Those science fiction writers are literally people who are big picture people. They take society and they look at it. Adel, could you put that down so I can... Great, just is too much. So they take society and they look at it and they say, what can we really see about where society is going? Where is it heading in a way that nobody else is seeing? We're too much involved in all of the nitty-gritty of daily activities, the wars, the economic stuff, everything, and we can't see where we're going. We can't see where the big picture is. And science fiction sends us way out into orbit and looks down with a wide-angle lens and says, so that's where we are. That's the real value of science fiction. What you need to do in each one of your papers when you do this is to identify that element in each book that is the big picture towards humanity, towards some issue of politics, towards something. You've got to find that big picture, and it's got to be non-obvious. Now, if we read the opinion columns of Thomas Friedman, Paul Krugman, Nicholas Kristof, others. The one thing that makes a good opinion writer is that the opinion writer brings her or his different new element to the discussion. People are not thinking those thoughts. They're involved in something, but they don't understand where it all ties together, how it all gets together into a bigger picture. So that's what it's caused. For example, Thomas Friedman taught, had a opinion column the other day, it might, might have been yesterday, where he talked about the fundamental underlying cause for Islam to be radicalizing right now. And he didn't say that the that there was a problem with the religion or that there was a problem with Muslims. What he said was there was a problem with the diversification and the educational component of the overall societies. So you have Asian countries such as China and India plowing as fast as they can into high technology and in the Middle East the people have no they, they've been educationally stilted 
they they have no prospect for jobs. The educational environment is just not there. If you look in India, for example, the richest person in all of India, India's version of Bill Gates, is a Muslim. Very much into high technology, the whole business. But you don't get that in the Middle East. The universe, Islam used to be known in you know centuries past for great innovations in astronomy and education, the libraries. But we have gone through a period where that's not there. And the U.S. and world economy is driving a situation in the Middle East where we are willing to, we have been, openly acknowledged, Condoleezza Rice talked about this not too long ago, we have not encouraged and actually encouraged, we have not encouraged open democracy and the, the diversification of those societies. And in fact, we have encouraged the opposite, the treatment of those societies as if they're just gas stations. And what that has done is it's impoverished, educationally impoverished, the entire populace in the Middle East. Wherever there's oil, there's a problem. And what you have is situations in countries without oil that don't have their problem. It's not a problem with Islam. It's not a problem with Muslims. It's a problem, basically, with oil and the lack of diversification in those societies so that the educational component just isn't there. And it was a new element because so many of the other people in society, news people, reporters, they were all looking at it from the perspective of, wow, these Muslims are blowing themselves up. It's a radicalization of Islam or the whole world. What's going on with this? As if there was a problem with the Muslims. And Thomas Friedman saw past that and saw the bigger picture. There's an economic problem. There's an educational problem. There's a diversification problem. Those societies are not are not growing the way other societies are supposed to grow. It has nothing to do with Islam. And, he, and then, of course, pointed to the other areas where there is no problem with Islam and education, and those societies don't have this, these, this level of blowings up and <laughs> terrorism and stuff like that. So, <clears throat> you've got to be able to see the big picture, to see past all the trees and to be able to get a big wide-angle view of the, of the forest. So the first thing you want to do is to identify what that big picture is. Now, this is a social science course, so the big picture has got to be oriented to what the science fiction novel is telling us about society in a way that we weren't getting it before. So that's the first and most important. What is the social science fiction component that's really unusual? Like, for example, with Isaac Asimov's Foundation trilogy, the big issue was the incapability of humanity to predict and it's to predict its future in a way that makes it possible to guide the evolution of humanity. Are we just random ping pong balls being thrown around the inside of a room, battering ourselves against one wall then the next? Or can we guide our evolution? And how would that be done? When we don't guide our evolution, we are in a situation of chaos, long term. When we guide our evolution, we can enter an enlightened realm. Then all sorts of other questions come in about that as well, moral, uh, whether we should be doing that and so on. But that was the basic issue. Humanity's being able to guide itself. So, when we deal with the issue of the brave new world, 
we want to be able to find the social component and find out what that big that big picture is. Make sure that major point is in the first paragraph. Make sure it's also back in the in the last paragraph, and make sure that all the middle paragraphs support that determination of the big one. What you really want to be able to do is think of these pieces as if you're trying to explain to your mother and father when you go back on breaks why you read a science fiction course in a political science, why you read a science fiction book in a political science course. You want to be able to explain what that big picture is so that your mom and dad say, whoa, that's profound. Yeah, I'm glad you had those ideas. Do you get the idea? So that's that's the hard part of this whole thing. Okay, let me... Does anyone have any comments on the comments that I made on your papers that are unusual? Sometimes it's very helpful for me just to... Oh, no quotes. Don't quote. Like if you read opinion column from the from the New York Times, in the New York Times you don't see any quotes. Use your own words. Your words are what matters. Quote, like, What's that? They sometimes quote people like a... And if Connie Sivanis makes a speech which he's focusing a lot on, then he'll make a quote from that sometimes. An occasional rare quote, but in general, try to stay away from quotes. I want to hear your words, not other people's words. So just in general, summarize, paraphrase what people say if you need to, but then get into your own statements. The other issue I wanted to mention is the narrowness of the topic. The one thing you want to avoid is to have a topic that's too broad. So you want to find the big picture but you don't want to go in the direction of, of saying, this book is about everything. This book is about all that exists in humanity. You want to find some narrow topic and then get the big picture of that narrow topic. So, what Thomas Friedman did in his editorial, in his opinion column, he said, the narrow topic is education in Middle Eastern countries that have a lot of oil. That was it. The conjuncture between oil and education in the society. The big picture is, that's what's driving terrorism. But he focused it on the educational component in oil-driven economies in the Middle East. Do you get the idea? So you find the big picture, but then take a narrow topic of that. And the narrowness is important, because in 780 words, 850 words, whatever these short things are, you cannot spend a lot of time covering or covering every base in the world. You've got to get a narrow topic. And you write this with the assumption that you're going to have another opinion piece in another week. So you don't have to say everything in the first one. Each one accumulates. So each opinion piece is on its own. Okay, and, and everyone always use new, uh, Times New Roman 12-point font. Okay. All right, I think everything's self-explanatory. Okay. Well, we're starting with David Brin's The Uplift War. This is not the first of his novels in the Uplift series. He's got a whole bunch of them. And there was Sundiver and Star Tide Rising. The last time I taught this course, we looked at Star Tide Rising. The basic story that this is about is a continuation, a follow-up of Star Tide Rising. It's independent by itself as a separate novel, but the Uplift War 
comes on the heels of the Star Tide Rising novel. The Star Tide Rising novel was about a starship, a research starship that was run by dolphins predominantly and they ran across something in the galactic in the galactic woods and they made a brief radio message back to earth about what it was and that caused a huge chase and then everything else is related very closely to this which is who did the chasing what was all about so we're just covering the first part of it. We might end up spending, it's a long novel, 600 pages. We might end up spending three days on it. But let me ask you, what is what is the basic, if you were to try to explain it to your mom after having gone through a couple hundred pages of it for today, what would you say is the basic idea being conveyed now, not necessarily the basic, so, the big picture social idea. By the, the big picture, the social component, the big picture we will get by, uh, by next Tuesday. But for right now, if we were to say, what are the components? What is there? What would you say this is basically a novel about? What are, you're explaining to your mom and dad. What's this? They pick it up and they say, what's this about? What's going on? What would you say? Well, a lot of it's about, um, like, it's about the interaction between client species and then, I can't remember what they called them, species that had uplifted people. And, like, not necessarily the moral issues, particularly, but then when you get into, like, the humans and the gorillas in the forest, it's kind of like the moral issues and what you can and can't do, and you've got the client species and you know, the people who uplifted them, and it's kind of, not really moral, but sort of like the implications of that. All right. The uplift, it's about the interactions with the species. Okay, but let's go back a little bit further than that. If then you're, what would your parents do if they said, what about this, what do you mean, interaction between the species? What's... What do you go back? How did the species get there in the first place? I mean, what's what do you mean species? What does species have to do with it? What's this uplift thing? Evolution. Evolution. Well, what about evolution? Uh, in the book, they force evolution upon different species. They take something with potential, and they bring it up to their view of like interstellar intelligence, but. In the book, the humans um, brought themselves up to that level, and so it. Like, part of the book covers how the like rigid. It's quite a rigid, like galactic culture about this. How that has to try and deal with this new species that force themselves onto the scene, without like the standard protocols and everything. So like the humans will look down on. But they'd already made, they'd already started to uplift two species of their own. So they couldn't be ignored and just shunted to the side. They had to, like, give them recognition. But having recognition isn't the same as having, like, the respect of, like, the bird people have or the psychic people have. I've got the names. The Timberini. Yeah. So. Yeah, the Timberini. Yeah. A lot of the books about trying to find your. Trying to like 
get gain respect, trying to find your place in this culture which doesn't want to accept you. Okay, uh, let's summarize then. You started out by saying it's about evolution, forced evolution, and that the humans were not a forced evolution race, but that the rest of the galaxies, apparently of the five galaxies, were forced evolution. And that we had genetically manipulated, you didn't use those words, but you were talking about it, two other species. And what were those other species? Chimpanzees and the dolphins. Yeah, the chimpanzees and the dolphins to become sentient. So, if you were to look at the overall picture, what is the book about? And tell your mom and dad. What you'd probably want to do is look at the title of the book. It's about the idea of uplifting. Now, that's what you're getting at. You're all saying that type of stuff. But try to boil it down when you do this, when you try to get it down to what is it all about. This is the thing where you have to step back and look at what... Notice that many responses so far have been focusing on details. Those details are important, but they come after the chapter title, (laughs) or the title of the... And in this case, the title of the book. This book is about the concept of uplifting. (coughs) Uplifting species. Now, this is a very controversial topic. The whole idea of uplifting species. Well, first of all, what is uplifting of a species? When you uplift a species, what do you do? You genetically manipulate. Well, humans genetically manipulate dolphins and chimpanzees, but it doesn't, at least in the part that I've read, doesn't really talk about what other species do. To lift up the species. What do they do when they uplift something? Well, I mean, they make it into like a, a sentient race. How do they do that? I, I don't know. I well, that's a genetic. That's a genetic. That's that's a no, genetic. They, they issue. genetically manipulate them too. Genetic manipulations. This is genetic engineering. Go ahead. There'll be conditioning involved as well, though. I'm sorry, Aldo. There'll be conditioning involved as well. Like conditioning and genetics. The simultaneous, this, the slow, the education and the genetics. Now, this book would not have made much sense before genetic engineering came about in the first place in our society. So, this book is a real consequence of the process of genetic engineering as we do it, as we're learning how to do it. So, in that sense, it's foretelling where it's going. Because right now, there's been a lot of controversy about whether you can clone something whether you can manipulate the genetic engineering is here we can definitely manipulate the genes of things how far you can take it whether you can clone things or whether you can uh, you know design species as you as you would like to design them almost in a godlike fashion that's not yet been determined but we're definitely at the edges of that we're definitely manipulating genes and the manipulation of genes, as far as we know, has no end in sight. So this novel is a potential. This novel is clearly talking about something that is possible. Changing genes. 
And when you talk about changing genes, you're talking about fundamentally changing evolution. Well, what does this novel run smack into, like a wall, with regard to our society? What major controversy, science and educational controversy, does our society have that this novel runs smack into? We're dealing with uplift. It's the big picture. Forced evolution. What does this novel run smack into in our society? Forty percent minimal of the entire population of the United States would say reading this pop this book in a college is 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 damnable. It the shouldn't be done. Evolution versus creationism issue. At the, that's exactly right. This is talking about forced evolution, making sentient species ge- genetically. And what is forty percent of the population of the United States saying? That evolution itself is gunk, is is garbage. It didn't happen. Somewhere between 40 and 50% of the entire population of the United States thinks that we humans were walking around the exact same way we are today in the time of the dinosaurs. That there was Tyrannosaurus Rex right there, okay? And there was Susie Smith and Joe Blow standing right next to them just the same way we are today. 40 to 50% of the United States has a negative view towards evolution. That, that it's just a theory. That it didn't really exist. And that the alternative is, what is the alternative that they would like to push? Creationism. Creationalism, otherwise known? Intelligent design. Intelligent design, designed by God. A religious interpretation. Now, that religious interpretation comes directly out of... King James Bible. The Bible. In fact, you mentioned the exact version that they prefer. Yes. <laughs> that, that version of the Bible comes right out of the book. The book. The source of all knowledge. And their interpretation of that book. Now, if you think about it, we're not talking about a fringe element of our society. We're talking about one of the largest segments of our society that exists. A huge element of our society. What does that tell you about our educational problem? Now remember we were just talking about Thomas Friedman's evaluating the disjuncture between Islam and education that's happened recently. We have a whole crowd of, a whole generation of people that just don't have the educational Opportunities that they need to have in a modern society in order to progress, and that oil is the fundamental reason why this is why this is this is this is happening. But what is his real problem? His real problem that he's seeing is that there's a lack of education there. Notice that we're talking about it there, like it's not our problem. What do we have as a problem? Education. Pardon me. Yeah. Lack of education? Less. See, like, um, the education, the difference between education there and here is different. Because the education there is very much lacking the basic literacy skills. But here, we have like a pretty good literacy rate. The problem here is that having 
being made literate. The people have like taken the Bible and a lot of them hold it as like the sovereign authority. Instead of their education here opening their minds up to new ideas. So while there's a lack of education here and there, the like fundamental problem with that education is different in the two places. Very interesting. Excellent. Adam, so glad you said that. So I was talking about a difference in the problem, that there is fundamental literacy. Here, we've conquered fundamental literacy, but we have an issue with how far we take our education, which is how far we get into science, so that they have basically gone back to an, uh, a, 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 so many people have gone back to a literal interpretation of the Bible as a way to cut off a, di a discussion of science. Fundamentally, we're talking levels of degree, though. Whether it's fundamental literacy and then going to a fundamental interpretation of the Quran, or conquering basic literacy and then going to a fundamentalist interpretation of the Bible, you're still getting a chopping off. You're still getting a cessation of exposure towards science. And what we're having is, in this novel, is a real confrontation between free and open experiment and design, which is what the wolflings, earth people, the humans did. They evolved by themselves and they said, hey, let's do it to chimps. Hey, how about dolphins as well? Great. Make them on an equal level. And a fundamentalist way of looking at things. Now, let's take a look at the galactic society. Adel, I'm so glad you raised that because if you were to look at the galactic society in the uplift war, David Rin's uplift war, do they have a do they have do they have a basic literacy rate problem? No. no, they can build ships. I mean, they can build starships. They've got their organization running on five galaxies. They've got technology. They can read, and they can uplift. It takes a long time for them to uplift the species, but nonetheless, they can do it. But are they open and free thinking? Is there, what is the connection between them and our fundamentalists, be they Islamic fundamentalists in the Middle East or Christian fundamentalists in, you know, in the, in the Bible Belt areas of, or anywhere in the United States? What's the connection? What's the similarities between them? Go ahead, Otto. Some of the races, like the, I think I'm pronounced it. The yeah, like Timbrini. Yeah, I call it Timbrini. Maybe I mispronounced it though. The the second letter is an What's that? The second letter is an M, I think. I think it's Timbrini. Okay, let's 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 see if we can let's settle this once and for all. All right. Well, uh, yeah, Timbrini. Oh yeah, Timbrini. Okay. All right. So we're just going to settle on Timbrini for reference to these people. What's we're that? We're just going to settle on Timbrimi for reference to these people. Yes, I think that's it. I'm looking at the spelling. T-Y-M-B-R-I-M-I. -I. How would you pronounce it? I think we'll stick with Timbrimi. How are you saying it? Were you saying Timbrimi, Timbrimi. Oh, Timbrimi. For some reason, I've had a Timbrimi in my mind for years. We might we'll go with that. <laughs> well, uh, however we pronounce it, I think we know who we're talking about. So, Otto, go ahead. They've got a very much more open, more like... Oh, like they're more willing to embrace new ideas. They're the people who like are the Earth's strongest allies. They've accepted the Earthlings against the Birdmen, who have a very much more closed off. Like their society is very stagnant. It's hard. It's brittle. 
and that can like that can be shown to the different factors in our society that you've got the people who embrace the new ideas the the timbrimi of our society and you've got the birdmen of our society like the very religious like no it's written so it must be there's no other way it can be okay so the, we have we have a diversity here we have well, actually, we have a larger diversity. We have the humans on one side, which are willing to, in this novel, throw caution to the wind and just think of new ideas. Then you have the Tibrimi in the middle, who are flexible, but still understand the, the value of the book. What's the book? In, in, they don't call it the book. What are they? The library. The library, which is the equivalent of the book or the Bible. Is you always go back to the source or the Quran. So the library is the analog is is that which is analogous to the Quran or the uh, King James version of the Bible, say the book, the library. When you go back to to find when you have any problems whatsoever, you go back to the book or the library to sort it out, and that will tell you how to interpret and what to do, how to interpret what's happening, what to do. And then we have the other galactics, the the bird people, for example, the ones who go zoom, <laughs> and those people are very rigid, fundamentalists in the strictest regard, yet technologically very, very up. So what we can do is we can really add a dimension to Thomas Friedman's opinion column of yesterday or the day before, whenever it happened, which is not so much that there's an educational divide, but a flexibility divide, a flexible thinking divide. Not now, only that though. Go ahead. It's also visible in the way that people, the different over species treat their uplifted like subservient species. Like the humans hold the species they've uplifted as almost equal to them. Yeah. While the Timrimi hold, like they respect, they friends with their species. Like they I've forgotten the names of species they uplifted, but when it was time for them to choose their protector, they chose the dolphins, which are like the weakest of all the species. They're the last of the human ones. So, like, it shows the level of like care of love between the Timbiami and their ones. And then you have the uh, Zoom birdmen, yeah. who have like a very tight grip on their species, like their other little birds they don't like those ones don't have they treat them as servants basically like if something goes wrong they yell at them they aren't as nice to them as the other ones so that also can reflect back on like the differences in the diversity in the culture of the yeah. empire so the different species are, are different uh, not just in their way of thinking, but also in the way they treat their client species. No, by, no, by the no. way, the group you're talking about, I pronounce the gubru, uh, the bird, the bird. I just the yeah. And so, what? So, so what you're saying is that there's, that there's a difference not only in educational level and technological level, and flexibility level, but also in how they treat the lowers and how they, how they treat the, the various castes, whether they treat them as castes or whether they treat them as equals. Hmm. There is 
a real issue on the level of on the level of education with these people with the uh, the larger with with the, uh, the the galactics if we are to look at the galactics the rigid way of thinking in our society and then the flexible way of thinking for example in humans and the in the David Brin's view of the world where would you find representations of that problem of this conflict between way of thinking and living now some of the ladies should speak as well where do you find the conflict you're trying to find remember we're trying to find the big picture where do you find the conflict between the educational dilemma the flexibility dilemma and what we have here as humans if you were to try to look at the novel and say map it to the current map it to our world where would you find that Come on in. Where would you find that? Try to look. Try to find. Give me examples of where you'd find that type of problem. The problem between the educational rigidity and and our world. Give me examples of something that's happening currently, topically. Go ahead, you can take the book out. Oh, yes. You don't have it? Or, yeah. What do you get in the news? If you were to go to the news and, and you try to say, you know, what's happening recently? Do you not have it? I love the news. Okay, that's right. So if you were to go to the news and try to say, what have you seen recently in the news? How would you interpret, with regard, interpret it with regard to David Brin's uplift war? Okay, let's take the New York Times of today. See if we can take a look at it. Let's make see if we can do it all together. Lead story in today's New York Times. Blast at Shiite shrine sets off sectarian fury in Iraq. This is Thursday, February 23rd, 2006. Sunni mosques attacked and 15 killed. A powerful bomb shattered the golden dome at one of Iraq's most revered Shiite shrines on Wednesday morning, setting off a day of sectarian fury in which mobs formed across Iraq to chant for revenge and attacked dozens of Sunni mosques. The bombing at Eskaria Shrine in Samarra, 60 miles north of Baghdad, wounded no one but left the famous golden dome at the site in ruins. Now, I have a picture here of the dome. Here's the picture of the dome on the front page. See how it is? Looks, it's a beautiful mosque. I mean, it's just gorgeous. And look at it now. I mean, it is. Re- that was not a firecracker that went off in that thing. That blew that dome up. That thing is history. It's going to take a... They're going to have to rebuild that thing from scratch. So... The, bon, uh, uh, the shrine is central to one of the most dearly held beliefs of Shiite Islam and the bombing coming after two days of bloody attacks 
that have left dozens of Shiite civilians dead ignited a nationwide outpouring of rage and panic that seemed to bring Iraq closer than ever to open civil conflict. Shiite militia members flooded the streets of Baghdad, firing rocket-propelled grenades and machine guns at Sunni mosques, while Iraqi army soldiers who had been called out to stop the violence stood helpless nearby. By the day's end, mobs had struck or destroyed 27 Sunni mosques in the capital, killing three imams and kidnapping a fourth. Interior Ministry officials said, In all, at least 15 people were killed in related violence across the country. Thousands of grief-stricken people in Samarra crowded into the shrine's courtyard after the bombing, some weeping and kissing the fallen stones, others angrily chanting, Our soul and our blood and souls we sacrifice for you, imams. Imams. All right. What's going on? Factional dispute. Certainly there is a factional dispute. What were people talking about yesterday on the news with regard to how to interpret this new escalation of events? I didn't read the newspaper yesterday. Well, on the news, in the Jim Lehrer News Hour, for example, they were talking about this as the potential opening for the Civil War that so many people have said was coming. If you go back to the early days of Desert Storm, uh, to the early days of the second invasion of Iran, of Iraq, second invasion of Iraq, not the first Desert Storm days, but the the current invasion, there was an opinion column written by Leslie Gelb in the New York Times that was most pregnant. It said, look, we're trying to occupy this thing, going into this thing, this is what's going to happen. He said, (coughs) you've got fundamental divisions between the thinking of the Kurds, the Shiites, and the Sunnis. The Kurds and the Shiites will have the oil, the Sunnis won't have the oil. But there is no way you're going to get all three to live together in a happy place like Connecticut, New Jersey, and New York. It's just not going to happen. What you need to do is put, is make a strongly federated arrangement where the powers that are given to the individual reasons are really quite autonomous. And then you need to squeeze the Sunnis so that they have to participate because they have to get out of the habit of not having all of the power and the oil and the money that they've had for so long and they have to learn how to compromise so you give most of the oil to the Shiites and the Kurds and then the Sunnis have to behave themselves in order to get anything otherwise they're impoverished but you play Machiavellian politics Jason you're so fond of talking Machiavelli you you play Machiavellian politics with three separate regions and you basically let the three separate regions go their own way and then you'll have a moderate, a mod, uh, you'll have a moderating Sunni area, when in fact they have to moderate in order to survive. Now, the situation now is years after that opinion column, and it looks more and more like what people thought originally that the basic uh, one of my one of the subjects I have taught for, for a long time here at Emory 
is developmental democracy, which is how to develop a nation, how to get a democracy started, how to get it in on the ground floor. One of the fundamental components of democracy is not elections. You don't have elections right when there's nothing there. In Africa, you don't have the problem, in sub-Saharan Africa, you don't have the problem with the mosques. You have the problems with the other M, the military. When you don't have institutions that are widely diverse and heterogeneous in the society, I'm talking the, the bar association, the dental association, the medical association, the PTAs at the schools, the local businesses associations, when you don't have all those groups operating, functioning in a vibrant economy with the schools going and everything, then what you do have is you have only one organization in the society other than the government, which is the army. So you have the civil service, the bureaucracy, the president, the legislature, and then you have the army. So if the legislature or the president, if the government falters in any way, everything devolves immediately down to the army. Then the army takes over, which is why you have so many coups in sub-Saharan Africa. There's no in-between the army and the government. So are you suggesting that when you have a, like, a oppressed country that you're trying to bring out... Uh, how do you like what do you do at the beginning then do you give it to governor and have the governor you know, rule it until it's at the point where elections can take place well actually this is a good point what do you do then if you're trying to design something to be quite honest you follow the Chinese model <laughs> what China's doing right now is actually very good for the development of democracy in the future they're developing a very complicated infrastructure they're developing a very complicated and heterogeneous capitalist society. And you're having all of these economic groups starting to demand that they have a modern legal system. They have disputes. You see, the companies are having disputes among themselves, and they have to be able to sort this out. And they can't go to a situation where they hire gangs of thugs and go shoot the other people at the companies. You can't have IBM shooting Hewlett-Packard. Do you get the idea? You have to be able to resolve these disputes. And the Chinese themselves, their, their own economic groups, are starting to say, government, I'm sorry, we can't wait anymore. You have to have a modern judicial system. You see, it's going from the ground up. Now, China is not a democracy. But when it does go democratic, the infrastructure will be there. All the groups will be demanding that it do something. Like Sub-Saharan Africa, we should have made it a communist thing and let the ground pressure force. No, not necessarily communist, because communism stilted, stilted, um, stifled the growing of a modern society in China. So what? The, what you have now, the reason China is moving in the direction that democracy will be possible, is because it's moving in the direction of a, of a more modern capitalist society where they have the heterogeneity. In Africa, what you needed is. The best model would have been, for example, South Africa, not with apartheid, but South Africa with the developmental the development of all the groups during the apartheid regime when it was clearly a fascist regime. It was non it was a non democratic regime based on racial racial superiority concepts. You nonetheless had white labor unions, black labor unions, colored labor unions, 
You had dental associations, legal associations. You had all those groups. So when democracy finally came to South Africa, it didn't come on barren ground. It came on top of all those groups. In other sub-Saharan African countries, none of that is there. I'm talking zero. None of it. So the only organized group in town other than the government is the military. So when the government runs into trouble, the military takes over. Let's go to the Middle East. When the government screws up, what's the next organized group? And the only organized group? The mosque. Islam. Do you get the idea? That heterogeneity is not there. So without that heterogeneity in the society, you get that inflexibility. Everything goes down to the mosque. Just like in sub-Saharan Africa, everything goes down to the military. Well, this blast at the Shiite shrine, a lot of people are saying is the beginning of the Civil War. The one that Leslie Gelb is, was basically predicting to be inevitable. This is the beginning of the end. And when that does happen, you're seeing the United States will simply have to pull out. And that'll be the end of it. The whole big adventure, like George Bush's adventures. Someone will write a novel. George Bush's adventures, <laughs> which is the big adventure in Iraq, will just turn out to have been a, an adventure. That there won't be a solid Iraq, a democratic Iraq. There will be a, three separate states and... Uh, in a fractious now that, I'm not saying for sure this is going to happen I'm saying that this is a great this is a very significant possibility so then we can say well what's actually at the root that's connecting to this novel David Brin's The Uplift War in this in this thing why is it that Shiites are fighting Sunnis and Sunnis are fighting Shiites what religion are they both Islam they're both Muslims. They both follow Islam. They're cousins. I'm not talking differences between Christianity and Islam. I mean, they're both Muslims. Ireland. Pardon me? The conflict in Ireland, there was the Protestants and the Catholics. They're both Christian. But that was some of the... Exactly. Like, worst, like, guerrilla warfare that has existed in this world. The fighting between the during the Reformation, the fighting between the Protestants and the Catholics. That was a huge battle as well, very similar, both Christians. What do we see here, though? What is the fundamental divide here between the Shiites and the Sunnis? Sunnis used to be in power, but Shiites are the greater numbering, so in the modern... Okay, now you're talking politics. Let's talk theology. Oh, it has to do with um, the Shiites, I think. When it, when Muhammad when Muhammad died, uh, when Muhammad died the they wanted for the, as well the Sunnis were for his some of them were for his brother or his cousin or someone who was in exile or not in exile but they, they wanted someone else to follow him they they thought that one of his relatives maybe was yeah, by divine right his successor and, and yeah. then the other group wanted his someone else to ah uh, yeah the Shia Muslims wanted well at least for a specific I'm a specific sect I'm a Smiley. We, uh, the Prophet's cousin, we believed he was the successor. But um, the Sunni Muslims, the majority, believed there was Abu Bakr, another person. So now you'll see these Imams, which are like spiritual guides. But the Shia Muslims don't believe in. I mean, the, the major sect does, but the divide came after Prophet Muhammad, pretty much, around who was succeeding. So, I mean, that's the theological difference between. 
So we're talking fundamentally. We're talking about an, a difference of interpretation. Yeah. Of how to be a how to be a Muslim. But there's no fundamental difference of whether it's good to be a Muslim. It's how to be a Muslim. The interpretation of exactly what happened, who did what, exactly when. Quranic interpretations. How does this relate to the novel? I'm mentioning this in terms of Islam only because it's so topical with regard to today's newspaper. They're blowing themselves up. They're, they're fighting each other. The difference... The different like, galactic species are fighting one another over a ship, a single ship that discovered something out there. And rather than going out there trying to figure it out for themselves, they think that we like we deserve to know this. So we're gonna if they don't give it to us, we're just gonna take it from them. What threat does that ship pose? that they're so concerned about. That the newest race, the humans and their uplifted species could find the progenitors, the very first. The, the progenitors, that they could find the progenitors. Let me, let me read you something that's out of the, what is it out of? It's a prologue, I believe it is. The very end of the prologue. No, the prelude. I'm sorry, the prelude. When the Gubru are having a meeting, the bird people are having a meeting and they're so upset with the humans, the chimps, and the chimps on the uh, planet of Garth that the humans had been colonizing. And the guru were meeting. This is on page 7 of the Uplift 4, the very end of the prelude. And they were sending forth their forces to go battle the wolfling humans and their chimp. And their chimps, okay? And, and then the president says, You shall go forth then, the conclave president sang, You three new suzerains of our race and of our clan the three looters. You shall go forth and win conquest. You shall go forth and humble the wolfling heretics. Zoom, the assembly cheered. The president's beak lowered toward her breast as if she were suddenly exhausted. Then the new suzerain of cost and caution faintly heard her add, You shall go forth and try your best to save us. <laughs> What's he talking about? That the president recognizes that their society is stagnant, that they're unchanging, they can't accept new ideas. So she's hoping that this new triumvirate has the ability to read life back into their culture. Because at the moment, they're like the everyone recognizes them as the most warlike, most dangerous people here, but like they can't see anything apart from the way that they're doing things now, that by by war, by going out there, by doing things in the way they've always been done, that's how the assembly believes that things are going to be done. But like the coming of the humans, the whole thing going on here, 
that these people's entire fleet couldn't catch this single ship. Maybe something's not right with our culture. Like she's old enough, she's wise enough to realize that maybe we're not doing things right after all. Interesting. The threats, maybe we're not doing, maybe they're not, maybe, they're, so the Guru are afraid that maybe they're not doing something right. They couldn't capture the ship despite... I'm not sure the Guru in general, it's like in the modern world, the majority of the people mm-hmm. believe in one way. It's just the... They believe in one way. seeing the big picture. Uh, us like thinking then maybe we're not doing this right. So it's only a couple of people, the people who have that ability to step back and look at the whole thing. Okay. So, but you're still talking about the basic idea of them perceiving the wolfling humans and the chimps as a threat, as a huge threat, a threat to their order. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think part of the problem is that um, even in like our world now, that certain species are scared the lower species is going to catch up to them and have that advantage. And I think it's the same case in this circumstance that the chimps are now with the humans and they're kind of like getting brought up a little bit and that's going to threat them or threaten them later on in life. And I think that's what actually all humans in general are afraid of nowadays. Now, are you really thinking that they're really concerned? That's a very interesting point. Are you, cons- are you thinking though that they're concerned that the humans and the chimps might actually threaten them physically? Or what is it that they're... What is really at risk? Yeah, power. What kind of power, though? Are they going to be... Are the humans going to be taking over the Gubru? There's like a reputation, a position in this, like, government, in, like, the galactic warfare, like, the central galactic government. Like, position is based there on the number of eclipsed species you have, like, your background, and... Okay, so yeah. what is the what is the specific threat that the humans well, pose? Well, there? like well, like Athelina said when she found the the gorillas, she said, you know, the humans keep trying to uplift people, and there's there's an embargo on them. They can't do that because we don't. They can't they can't become a senior patron species. Is like what they're worried about. They're worried about the humans becoming, you know, why? After you uplift. What is the threat? Why does she say because the humans don't really conform? Go to forth and try your best to save us. They clearly see the humans as a direct threat to them. What? Why? Because eventually, if the humans like keep on growing, they're gonna actually turn flip the like kind of sides. Right. Yeah, like the new people are gonna be like lower, and the humans are gonna be on top. Well, would it be so simple as that? Let's go to a Stargate thing. M- many people have probably seen Stargate, the science fiction. And what did Tilk always end up saying to others about how the gold? actually maintained their power. What was it that gave the gold power? They were false gods. They were false gods, true. Yeah. But what what was what was the only reason until kept on telling everybody why the only reason they had power? People were scared of what would happen if they went against the gold. Yes, that was part of the intimidation. But the reason they had power in the first place is because the Jaffa let them have power. The Jafar, the Jafar supported them. So the Guru were worried that like the client species or like the other species sort of let them have power by letting them be the strongest. Exactly. That if the humans start getting more we, client species. That's exactly the point. It's not that the humans would take them over, but the client species would say, look at the humans. They've raised their chimps and immediately the chimps are equals. They don't have to wait for a thousand generations for freedom. What are the client species going to do other than turn around and say, 
screw you. I don't need you, guru. <laughs> and then the power structure falls down. Now, if you look at the history of the United States, look at slavery. This is direct application to us. With slavery, the real threat was that Blacks the... Pardon me? The whole threat was that the African Americans would be seen as equals to all the white people, and they did not see them that way. And they were afraid that if they got any sort of power or knowledge or anything, especially becoming literate, that the power would be in general. That's exactly right. And the one thing they did to try to control that was to forbid slaves from learning how to read so that they couldn't get any... so that they couldn't learn the reality that humans were human. So it's that it's that educational component that makes people believe something different and that a whole hierarchy then falls apart. Are we, in fact, as Americans, free of this? I've already talked about, or we've already talked about the issue that 40 to 50% of Americans are fundamentally illiterate with regard to basic concepts of science. Well, in the David Brin's novel, that didn't help the galactics. They were technologically extremely superior, but they were also well, I mean, stopped in their process. You can take this out to another argument to um, stem cell research. I mean, it's Good. it's the same thing. It's uh, it's uh, that entire argument is not based on the on the scientific applications of that technology or that research because I think most people would agree that that area of research does show promise. What it's based on is this religious or moral issue about whether you think it's right and you know, and abortion too. You know, whether you think it's right, whether you think it's moral, whether you know, and it's so it's just it's the same sort of argument. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the other big issue with regard to stem cell research that people are not talking about but really worried about is whether it can lead to cloning of a sort. And the reason they're worried about cloning, there was a there was a um, movie about this not too long ago. You see, if somebody's sick and has a bad heart, if they could clone another person... The island? But yeah, the island. If they could clone another person and then kill that person, they could take the heart, and there'd be no genetic problem. Well, so, I mean, that's, the re- that's, that's, but, the, that's but one of the did, issues. Uh, but they have been working on being able to clone organs. I mean, growing organs. Without growing without the, rest growing of the, the human. Person. Yeah, without without, yeah. The but that's, that's one of the issues. Let's, let's get back, though. Let's get back... Let's get let's get back to the to the issue that uh, um, well yeah that's actually very important too but anyway let's get back to the issue of the uh, of us as a as as a species I mean as a nation how often have you heard someone say we need to follow the basic constitution as the founding fathers intended it to be. <laughs> Now, intentions depend a lot upon your perception. Intentions are your perception. But do you get the understanding that we're not at all free from any of these problems that David Brin is talking about? Is there any real difference between that statement, what the founding fathers intended to be, and the galactic saying, go back to the library to find out what the progenitors intended? This is the... What does that argument mean? The founding fathers intended this to be this way, and the proge- and the, the galactic saying the progenitors intended it to be this way. It's in the library. What is that really a defense of? 
It's a defense of the status quo. Of the status quo. It's a defense of not moving forward because... defense of not thinking for yourself. Yeah, I mean, one of of the nice things about the Constitution, one of the things that people always, you know, laud as, you know, one of its greatest features is its fluidity. I mean, the, the fact is that, you know, if something needs to be done to change the Constitution based on, you know, future changes in society... There's a there's a process set up for that built into the Constitution to add amendments to change it, and you know it's it's just and then you know people who want to go back to the original Constitution is kind of like let's just fly in the face of all the changes we've made. I mean, why don't we not give women the vote? I mean, why don't we only count you know black people as three fifths of a person? Why don't we go back to you know the original Constitution? If you actually, it's exactly right. If you actually do go back to the founders, do you think the founders would be approving of anything that we have today? <laughs> No, I mean, there's, there's always that, you know, if the founding fathers were still alive, they'd be rolling over in their graves, I mean. Yeah, I mean, not only do we have African Americans voting, but we have white people, men even, that are workers, regular, all you have to do is, you have a driver's license, you can go to vote. Uh, you don't have to have, you don't have to be landowning estates, um, you, uh, all types of, all types of, I mean, the Senate is no longer appointed, the president is, is, you know, except for the 2000 election, no longer appointed. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, the, the Electoral College is mostly rubber stamp. And what we have is a tremendous difference from what the Founding Fathers' original thinking was. Women now e- participate equally. So uh, this is just a nine-day difference from what we, Would we really want, if we could use a time machine to bring the Founding Fathers back here, to govern us, would we really want them here? No, because they want to go back to the old ways of doing everything, and that's just. I mean, they're too yeah. advanced to do that. I mean, in their day, they were something, but put them in today, they were cretins. They just did not know how to do things. You know, we don't want them here. So, what is the statement? What did the founding fathers want? Interpret the. What is that really all about? If in fact the founding fathers are dorks, they would have nothing to do with the current contemporary society. What is this idea of interpreting the Constitution according to its what original intent? What's that? They say, they say that listed is what the founding fathers meant, Ben. Oh, say it again. I, I couldn't get it. They say that let's go back to what the founding fathers meant. But what they really, what they really mean is let's go do things the way I want to do them. Yeah, and use the founding fathers as a... Yeah, exactly. Let's go. It's a reinstatement of their own desires. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's... It's really a, a way to get people to do what they want them to do and use the Founding Fathers as a support personnel, sort of as the backdrop for this. Well, in the galactics, in the galactic situation, we have galactics out there that are always going back to this concept of the library. One thing I want to add. If... The wolflings and their uplifted species, the dolphins and the chimps, were to actually come across a fleet of progenitor vessels where they could actually get the originals, the people who started everything, created the library and everything. That's like going back and getting getting hold of Moses and Muhammad and Jesus and Buddha and putting them all in the same room and say, why don't you sort out our mess now? Can you just sort of tell us where we went wrong, what's going on? And so what they're really what they're talking about doing is having this other race, humans, dolphins, and chimps, actually getting some original material. 
What happens then when you get original material? Change. You get change, and you get tremendous change. You see, that's what we're dealing with in today's New York Times. You're dealing with people fighting who have interpretive differences of how things should be. And when you have interpretive differences of how things could be, the human reaction typically is not to calmly settle down and sort it out. The human reaction is to blow off the head of your opponent. And we, in the United States, are we really that much different? We look at the Iraqis and say how awful they are, what kind of a rot is going on. But are we actually that much different when our response to some of our own problems is is to is to think rigidly, is, is, is to think in a rigid way with regard to you know interpretations of our own uh, our, our own biblical stuff, interpretations of science, sort of the the desire to stop science from doing things. Okay, let's take a look at this from a a broad perspective. What's the issue here with science and uplift in our society? What does this run flat into? Not just evolution, but there's another issue that we haven't talked about. These are, by the way, these are just the basic precepts of the underlying novel. We'll get into the details on Tuesday. But if you look at a wide-angle picture of this, what's the uh, the last thing I want to cover today is What's the what's the religious thing that's really being the, the Christian Judeo-Christian understanding that's really being attacked by this novel? Intelligent design. What's that? Intelligent design. Yeah, intelligent design in one sense, but what is it from the King James, from a fundamentalist perspective of the Christian tradition, for example? that this really goes against. So it's not... It, it, it's fundamentally... You write a science fiction like a fiction book like this when you want to shake up us. David Brin wasn't trying to shake up the Iraqis. He's trying to shake up us. What fundamentalist component in our way of thinking, the very same reason that gets us in the beginning of class to talk about how 40 to 50 percent of our population doesn't believe in evolution, fundamental components of science. Well, what is it in us that this really goes against? If we were to accept the, uh, the basic idea, the title, Uplift, we aren't supreme by divine right. That, that we're not supreme beings by divine right. Go ahead. That the, like this book is very much supporting evolution and science. So it's saying that we're just here because we evolved. That there's that somebody else could reach our... Like we can play God. We can bring other species up to our level to our capabilities so that if that's possible then how can there be divine light being the supreme species surely it's just like matter theory, of chance 
Divine right. Otto's raising some, raising some good points. This is divine right. Uh, it is now clearly within the realm of possibility t- for us to start thinking about inserting genes inside chimps, dolphins, and others. Species that may have what they call in the novel potential. You're playing God. Yeah, and really you're rearranging genes. And when you're rearranging genes, you're rearranging the machinery of the body. And suddenly you have a chimp that has a vocal cord that works and a bigger brain. They're still furry. They still scratch. They're still chimps. But they have a bigger brain and they have vocal cords. I mean, we're getting very close to being able to do that. But the thing is they have a bigger human brain and human vocal cords. Well, they'd have... If you left them all to themselves, then maybe if they have potential, maybe eventually they'd evolve to decide by themselves but then they would evolve in their own way instead of the way we want them to be evolved. Like, in the whole book, like, the species took a... Uh, like, the patrons took species that had potential, but they converted them to... Uh, like, when they uplifted them, they inserted part of their own self into them. Mm-hmm. Part of the way they thought... Like, because of... Like, obviously, if you've been brought up by the species, you're bound to copy them. Like, the chimps started to emulate humans... Yeah. Like the mini birds started to, to emulate the Jumbo. So, like that, it's. We're forcing. Like, we're playing on. We're forcing our. ourselves on these other species that maybe when they could have come up by themselves and then we'd have been so much better off because it'd be diverser. We'd have had another point of view instead of just the same point of view that's like it could be seen as a problem with the galactic culture that it's always the same point of view that just got repeated through all these different species instead of bringing in anything new Mm. so so what you're saying is that the way the galactics do uplift they insert part of themselves in their client species and through conditioning they maintain a constant way of thought throughout yeah, no new radical new ideas. No radical new ideas. That's when the humans are brought into the scene. That could be seen as like the saving grace of the galactic culture. What would happen if we took that to the last? We're at the end now, but what would happen if we take that to the ultimate state? Where would we be? What would happen to politics in the United States if we took David Brin's message seriously? And this is just the basic precepts of the novel. We haven't gotten into the details. But what would happen in the United States? What about the issue of eating meat? Let me raise some issues just after we leave. The issue of humans being divinely gifted to control our society. What about global warming? Do we have the right to destroy the planet through global warming? The irresponsible destruction of our environment. If in fact other species could be equally potential to us. Could be equal in intelligent potential. All you need is some genetic manipulation and the chimps are equal to us. That the dolphins are equal to us. That the porpoises, that the whales. If just some slight genetic manipulation could alter them so that they would then be able to function with us as equals then what does it say about our ability to eat them, these other species? 
if there's that not that much difference between us. What does it say about our ability to fish them to destroy their environment? Are we doing anything different by destroying their environment by global warming than you would say how horrible it would be if one galactic species destroyed the environment of another planet that held a different species? We'd call them genocide. Invaders, we'd call them what? We call it genocide. Our destruction of our own environment, is it really much different? As soon as you remove humans from that pivot, that, that spot on the top of evolution and everybody else is below us, then every single aspect of all that we do, from driving our car in the morning to use the gas that helps with global warming and exploits our resources, to eating our burgers for lunch, to everything, absolutely everything becomes under becomes challenged. Do you get the idea? This is what the gurus were talking about. This is why they said, you shall go forth and try your best to save us. Because if we allow those new ideas to enter, to let people, to let everyone know that we are no longer on top, then it's not just that they no longer have servants, but everything in the society collapses. The whole hierarchy everything falls to pieces and what we get from today's New York Times this is what I'll end up with when you have anybody on any level challenging a belief structure that helps to maintain their power the Sunnis had power in Iraq they had a belief structure that reinforced that if anything comes in to change that that the Shiites were inferior and that the Sunnis were dominant and superior if anything changes that, what is the reaction? That's the reaction. Blast at Shiite shrines sets off sectarian fury in Iraq. That's the reaction. And we are no different here in the United States. If we accept what David Brin is talking about in this novel, our whole society is challenged in a way that is as fundamental as anything you can get anywhere. Anyway, what I'd like you to do between now and Tuesday, finish reading the novel completely, and try to come in with two or three major points that are as shocking as you can imagine. Try to be shocking. There's something called theater shock. Just shocking for shocking's sake. To get out of the box, try to think of something in the novel that is some of the most shocking things that has direct and non-obvious implications to our society and make some marks in your book so that you can, each one of you, I'm going to go around the room, each one of you, I'm going to say, read a passage that you say brings up something, a paragraph or two, that's really, that, that fundamentally would shake us. Okay? See you on Tuesday.